what is right for Coca-Cola may not be right for IBM, for example, because it's a different business. It's a different industry. Starting from there, what they need to consider is the technology stack they have in place and how easy it is for the new solution to be integrated with the existing technology stack. Sometimes the solution itself, a standalone, may be right for the business, but it needs to be integrated with whatever is there. And this may take customization, may require additional resources, may result in significant cost. So this is also to be taken into account before a decision is made which solution the company to go with. After that, it is another decision about who is going to support the integration going forward. I'm speaking again of relatively large organizations, because once a solution is integrated, especially if it is customized for the business, it needs to be supported. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. This is Danny, and today we speak to Lilia Stoinov, the CEO of Transformify. We're really happy to have you here today, Lilia, and we're really excited to speak to you on the unique spend culture that you have there. Lilia is a super talented person. She's a CEO and an investor and the former director of Procure to Pay at Coca-Cola Enterprises. Welcome, Lilia. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You've had such a diverse range of experiences throughout your career, from auditing at Ernst & Young to being the director of Procure to Pay at Coca-Cola, and now finally starting your own company at Transformify. Can you give us a brief summary of how you got here today and what made you start your own company? I'd say it's super logical. Once you start, you have a clear idea how a business operates, how to establish controls. That's what experience in auditing and consulting gives you as a senior executive. Out of a sudden, you learn how to monitor what all departments in the company are doing, how to establish the internal controls, and how to make sure that you see the big picture all the time. After one and a half years with EY, I was headhunted by one of our clients and I became CFO at 26 and a half, which was unprecedented. I was very young at the time. And after that, I joined first a joint venture of Merrill Lynch and the local subsidiary plus six business angels. And the moment the financial crisis hit and Merrill Lynch was no longer the big bank that could afford any investment projects all over the world, we needed to stop it. The project was put on hold for a period of time and I was headhunted by Skrill, a financial services company that's now part of Paysafe Group. And I stayed with the company as their general manager and CFO up until the moment the company was acquired for $1 billion. And after that, I joined Coca-Cola because they needed someone who has experience with payments to help with the business transformation all across Europe. So in a nutshell, it was one step leading to the next one. And the experience gained with the previous role was helping with the next role. 
And somehow, after all this, logically, it was time for me to start my own business because I had the money, I had the experience, and I was eager to apply them to create something meaningful. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Lilia. It's really interesting that you mentioned that because I've noticed that you must have a really strong business background in your previous roles in order to do something like this. In your experience, have you noticed that as a female business leader, are there any challenges that you have to face? Let's say maybe compared to men in this kind of role. Maybe I was privileged so far, but I never experienced bias. I never experienced discrimination of any kind. Especially when I became CFO for the first time, most of the people reporting directly into me were 10 to 20 years senior to me. I was 26 and a half, and still. They should respect is something you gain, and it is not necessarily related to your gender, your age, or anything else. It's your knowledge. It is the way you can impact and lead others. So, what actually made you start your own business, and what did this process look like? What are some tips for、uh, aspiring startup entrepreneurs to make sure that they have a good foundation before you know leaping into starting their own company? I was part of the business transformation process and witnessed people losing their jobs. So there was a business case, and a solution was needed. These people needed to be able to get a job that matches their skills and experience, and to be well paid, regardless of the location. They were not the type of people could easily relocate to another part of the world. Imagine in their fifties or sixties, very experienced, very well paid, having families, mortgages. They really need to stay where they are. That's all their life. But at the same time, they have some ten years to retirement, so they need to work. And at the same time, they're eager to apply their knowledge and to be part of the workforce. So that's how you start. You need to validate your idea. You need to validate that there are people who will be willing to use your solution the moment it is rolled out. Then the next part is to build your minimum viable product. A lot has been said about it. To me, a minimum viable product is the small piece that could be launched to the market to be tested with a limited number of potential customers to hear their opinion. Usually, the biggest mistakes at that stage is that you test it, but you test it with only one particular group of customers, and they're biased. Especially if your solution is intended to service more than one target group or more than one market. So it is good to take a look to test it with more groups to have a really Good feedback that could help you to improve your solution going forward. It's really interesting that you've said this because、um, I've noticed that a lot of companies, what they tend to do is sometimes that they only make one target consumer and then they create the product around that. But I think having an idea of a minimum viable product is so important. This way, you're not investing too much time and resources too early on, so you can always improve upon the parts. And、uh, just going a little bit more into your business, when you started out Transformify. How did you start looking for your core group of finders to help you build the team? I know that's something really hard for a lot of businesses, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. We are two co-founders, and we worked together before. Our CTO, who is the second director of the company, he used to be a colleague of mine at Creo, the payment services company, and because Transformify is built 
uh, the fintech company, it's around payment transfers to employees and freelancers. Of course, we have matching algorithms. We provide jobs to these people, but we also have the payment bit. I really needed someone who could navigate the team to build a fintech product. And he was the right choice. Then when we started hiring people, What's very interesting about us, and that's why we are recognized as a disruptor by Virgin and Sir Richard Branson, probably you have seen his tweet on our webpage. It is the fact that we don't relate to any location. We have no offices. We are a 100% remote company. And I have the privilege to hire the right people regardless of where in the world they are. If I need the best developer that fits into my team, I can have her or him anywhere. The very same is applicable to any other role. And after years of hiring, I've made many mistakes. That's inevitable. And now I follow the rule of three. That's what I have called it because it works brilliantly for us and for sure it will work for any other organization as well. The rule of three is all about having three steps in the recruitment process. You always first start with a panel interview with three team members. And why three? We are human. We are naturally biased. We tend to like people who are more or less like us, who have the same background, went to the same school. Sometimes we tend to like people who look like us. And this bias could be overcome only if there are more than two people. These three people are not random people either. They are ideally the direct reports of the candidate and the direct manager of the candidate because they need to speak the same language. There should be a very clear communication and good chemistry between the three of them. If it is a very early stage company like we were at the very beginning, it was people who would be interacting daily with the candidate. So it could be sales, it could be business development, etc that interact daily with product, for example, or interact daily with project management. But we wanted to make sure that the team is a coherent group of people who could normally communicate with each other and overcome any challenges there are many if the company is growing fast. Then the second phase of the interviews for us is always a homework of three case studies. Quite often, I hear the question, why do you give them a homework? They could get helped. They may ask people to provide guidance. They may search online for the answers. And that's precisely what I want the candidates to do. No one knows everything. I want the people we hire to be able to find information online or offline, to interpret it, to have it structured the way I need it. And if they don't have the answer or they see that it will take them too much time to find the answer, to pick up the phone, to reach out to someone within the team or their network and to ask for help. Least of all, I want people on board whose ego is big enough not to recognize that they don't know how to do it and never ask for help. This is creating problems going forward, always. And finally, the third step in our interview process is to check if these people could interact together under any situation. So we ask the candidate to organize an event. 
It doesn't matter what the event is. It could be a dinner. It could be going out to a bar. It could be a lunch. It could be a morning coffee. Really doesn't matter. But the candidate needs to coordinate the three people who are part of the interview process so far. And the moment they meet, they need to have good time together because going forward, they will be spending lots of time together. After all, we spent eight hours working per day. This is probably the majority of time we are awake. They need to feel well together. And it also tells us a lot about the communication style. You need to coordinate three people. Can you do that? Can you have everything in place, starting with time preferences, food preferences, place preferences, etc.? Can you overcome objections because these people will object something always? It's natural. If you can't coordinate three people, you're very unlikely to be able to manage a normal business process. And I need people who could be able to do that, to be successful. And only after all this, I have someone on board and I'm sure that this person will stay with us and that we'll have a really good team with low headcount turnover. Right? I think it's a really interesting thing that you mentioned, the rule of three. It's always really great to hear from other business leaders um, to see how they hire and to see how they really find the team. And I find that super fascinating that your entire team is remote. I think this really is the future of what it's going to look like for a lot of companies, that they realize the employees don't need to be all in one building. And if there's a good communication or, you know, clear checkups and strategy and goals, you can still become a very successful company regardless of where your employees live. And I'm speaking to this point since um, all your employees are around the world, they may not be within where you are. So based on this fact, how does Transformify currently track and manage your company spending with this? We have integrated Xero, which is an accounting finance software. It's super user friendly and because our processes are 70 to 80% fully automated, we see every invoice that has been automatically issued for every transaction. We see every expense report real time and we have budgets. So there is some flexibility in the budgets, but each department, each person needs to be within the budget. And it's impossible to go beyond the budget because there is a stop and the software will not allow them to spend more. It's as simple as that. Interesting. So the software in itself kind of uh, lets you know what you have left for the budget and then you limit the employee spending that way. Is that what happens? Yeah, because you need someone else's signature to incur an expense. Depending, of course, on the threshold, but in all cases, you need to be within the budget. So the moment you have a purchase order for whatever purchase, immediately it is compared to the budget if there is budget available. If there is budget available, then you need to obtain the approval of someone else, depending on the hierarchy. And if you receive an approval, that's good because it has already been checked automatically that there is sufficient budget. But if there is no sufficient budget, you just receive a message that there is no sufficient budget, this expense cannot go through. And if it happens to be a very, very critical expense that has not been budgeted to whatever the reason may be, or under budgeted as well, then there are more people required to make a decision to approve an expense that's over the budget and to assess the added value to the business prior to approving that. 
Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for the clarification. So what do you think are some challenges then with this form of system that you guys implemented since there are approvals that are needed? I know in a lot of companies that we work with, um, sometimes when one person is away and something that needs to be approved, there's usually a sort of a bottleneck effect that happens. And um, sometimes it causes a lot of lags. So how do you guys get around this? Automatically, if the one who needs to approve is currently away, this is also in the system. So it is the one who is covering for him or her that receives a notification to approve the expenditure. It is something that's very easy to address, and it is the way it works in very large organizations like Coca-Cola, for example, when you have 10,000 employees, there is always someone who is on a vacation, someone who is on a sick leave, etc. So it's impossible to have a bottleneck because of the fact that someone is not there. It's just a system control to send the request to whoever is currently covering for the person who is not there. I think um, what you mentioned is for organizations that do have more of a tendency to, you know, look at technology as a solution. Um, I think there's like many companies out there that are a little bit more traditional in that sense. You know, there might be still approving through email. They might be approving through paper, even using purchase orders that are through paper. <laughs> That's where it gets really challenging because you wouldn't have that flexibility in order to pass approvals to somebody else. In your opinion, what do you think is causing companies to kind of hesitate on finding a solution to manage purchase orders? Depends on the size of the company. Sometimes the technology itself is very costly to integrate and to support later on. And for a small company, it is probably justified not to implement it at an early stage, although they need it. Nowadays, there are enough software solutions that are allowing this to be done relatively easy and at a very low cost. So that's good. There are many expense report solutions, etc. At the same time, then it is the discipline in the company itself. Because if within the company you have something that's integrated, you have the software, but if the people are not recognizing the value and nobody is asking and questioning, okay, why there is an expense that has not been approved, then nobody's going to use it. I have seen this as well. And it is to be seen only with small and medium companies, with the large companies, it's absolutely impossible. You have annual audits, you have written internal control policies. In a big company, that's impossible. The company has very clear hierarchical structure and everything is fully integrated. It's impossible any expense to go through without being approved. It is impossible an invoice to be paid without an approval and without being matched to purchase order as well. And this is applicable to every big company. There are many levels of controls. They're using SAP, but I have seen the very same process with Oracle. We implemented Oracle R12 at Screw and it was SAP PR1 at Coca-Cola, plus Cloud on Demand specifically for the expenses which is a great solution because you can scan, especially for the field staff, they can scan any receipt, any invoice immediately to have this through their phone in an app and this to be uploaded online and the expense to be accounted for 
So it's a great solution. Of course, it takes time to train everyone who is using it, how to use it properly and how to properly classify the expenses. But the moment you have it and the people are trained, it is working. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I know personally that the training part is usually a big pain in a lot of um, larger organizations because sometimes the solution is just not as intuitive as it could be. So when it comes to, I guess, uh, increasing user adoption and also compliance to a process we're using a solution or product, how could you um, get the company to realize or measure the ROI of implementing a software solution? First of all, to select the right solution that is addressing the business case and the needs of the company. What is right for Coca-Cola may not be right for IBM, for example, because it's a different business, it's a different industry. Starting from there, what they need to consider is the technology stack they have in place and how easy it is for the new solution to be integrated with the existing technology stack. Sometimes the solution itself, a standalone, may be right for the business, but it needs to be integrated with whatever is there. And this may take customization, may require additional resources, may result in significant cost. So this is also to be taken into account before a decision is made which solution the company to go with. After that, it is another decision about who is going to support the integration going forward. I'm speaking again of relatively large organizations, because once a solution is integrated, especially if it is customized for the business, it needs to be supported. And it is either split between the provider and the company that has integrated the solution. It could be only supported by the provider. It could be only supported by the company, which is rare. This is something that's overlooked. Until the first moment, you have a serious problem, and this may happen at precisely the wrong moment before you need to file to the stock exchange, before you need to file your annual tax return, etc. So um, that's the moment when lots of organizations understand that their team is not capable of supporting the customization and they don't have the data readily available to provide the documentation that's required from them and this may result in fines. After that, when it comes to support, and this support is external, it's on the side of the provider, it is the resolution time that's important. Again, it really depends on the business, but if this is a listed company, you need to make sure that all documentation is provided within the deadlines. And in such cases, if there is a major problem, whoever the organization supporting the solution is need to be able to respond and to fix the problem within certain period of time, which is applicable in that case. So it could be 24 hours, it could be 48 hours, it could be three days, depending on the business. But it needs to be in the agreements and everyone needs to agree beforehand, before something happens, before the disaster hits. I know a lot of business leaders will really find your advice helpful, just because I feel like... um. A lot of organizations, what they do is they look at, you know, what are my competitors using or perhaps ask their colleagues, you know, what have you used in the past? And they apply the same one size fits all methodology and they think, okay, well, if it worked for this person, maybe it could work for me. So that point where you said every organization is different is super important. 
That's why we have this idea of spend culture, where it's kind of like, how does your company manage your spending according to your culture and not anybody else? So what we're trying to say here is that you must understand where your organization is coming from first, and what are the problems unique to you, and then how could you solve it best according to your needs and also the tools and processes and people that you need for your company. Absolutely, and sometimes it is the business case because if you have field staff and these people don't necessarily have access to computers. Most of the time, it could be your sales staff. It could be people who are dealing with logistics, etc. What they have is their mobile phone, and if there is an app that allows them to track any receipts and to upload these receipts immediately, it is good for everyone in the business because there is visibility. There are no documents that are lost, etc. And not every solution is allowing for that. On the contrary, if the majority of your company is in front of a desktop, there are no people on field, then you don't need that, and you not pay a premium to have an app just because for you it's not justified. Yeah, totally. You gotta think about what are the needs of your business and how does your team work. I mean, like for us, I think we really believe in mobile. Like、uh, we do provide a mobile solution for our users, for example. Just because we do realize that、um, the companies that we work with are more high-growth startups, and the future is going towards more what you mentioned—you know, remote work, people going in and out of the office and traveling. So that's one thing. This mobile capability of doing approvals, I think, is what we'll see a lot in the future for P2P solutions and financial solutions alike. So one more question here. What do you think are some poor practices that you've seen in your career when it comes to choosing a P2P solution, or when it comes to spend practices? What I would say, and I have seen this mostly as an auditor, is that due to whatever reason, sometimes misbehavior is tolerated by the management. Being it because the person is a top performer, it could be the business development team that is normally tolerated. So these people could be given credit cards with a much higher limits, and because they deliver to the business, nobody questions the fact that they don't follow the rules. They may not file their expenses at all sometimes. They may not collect invoices or receipts. They may not collect documents about their flights, and these are transatlantic flights, which are costly. But this happens. This happens, and it's the culture of the organization that should not tolerate it. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned credit card because that's one really popular form of payment that most companies use. You know, like when they give it to the employees, they say. Treat it as your own money, but sometimes you don't really have the controls in place in order to enforce that. What do you think some small or medium-sized companies could do when it comes to controlling credit card spending? Let's say if they don't have a P2P solution, but you want to be able to better solve the problem and better track and see where the spend is actually going. It's not the credit card itself that's the problem. I would say it is the way you tolerate the spending behavior that's the problem, because it could be in cash and still there could be no documents in place, and this is tolerated because whoever the person was has generated millions of sales, so nobody really cares about. This part of the control, especially if there is a threshold, and this is overall below the threshold. 
I wouldn't say even P cards, which are special cards that are specifically given for procurement purposes to people who are buyers for one of purchases to avoid setting up in the master data of the company a new vendor that will be one of vendor because it's time consuming, it's an effort, and it's a one of vendor after all. So that's why the P cards are used. But even in such cases, if the behavior is tolerated, again, no one would ask, okay, why there are so many expenses, all of them below the threshold and within the budget, but why? I would say even small companies are very likely to neglect this if this is a top performer. Yeah, um, that's a really good case study. I think um, it's important for a lot of companies to realize this, that you shouldn't make any exceptions just because, you know, you have a star employee or whether, you know, maybe even upper management misusing the card and they get away with it because they think they can. So I think um, establishing a strong sense of communication when it comes to what are the expectations of the process and what is the spend culture of your organization, um, to be clear on that, it's super important. And speaking of spend solutions, what do you think is the future of spend? And what do you think this is going to look like for companies around the world? Given that the cards are becoming more and more widespread, and each merchant has MCC merchant codes, so it's quite easy to recognize what type of expenditure is on the credit card, it is relatively easy to track the expenses real-time. And there are certain companies that are giving that information as part of their standard packages. In the UK, these are Revolut and Monzo. They are prepaid card companies, not P-card, not procurement card companies. But I'll give it as an example just on the reporting side. Whoever is managing the expenses will see real-time what is happening, who is spending on what, why, etc., and to me, this is the future because before it takes the banks lots of time to report back to the credit card holder and to give information about the expenses. Quite often, many old banks are still providing just lines without any real information, not the name of the merchant, not the MCC code. It is just the amount and it takes really lots of time to reconcile all this. It's not the future. The future is with transparency and it's coming. It's already here. It's interesting that you're mentioning this because um, a lot of our clients have actually said the same thing when it comes to company credit cards. Transparency and spend visibility, that's two things that they've said are also lacking in some spend solutions today and also the lack of data and reporting. One thing that they also mentioned is that the information is not real-time enough so by the time that they need to start making a decision, it's almost like, oh, too late. The spend has already been occurred and now it's time to make a decision. You have to wait until the information is given once again, or you have to really dig into the software to find that. Absolutely. And I see absolutely no reason for this information not to be provided. So another question I have is being an 100% remote company, how do you usually break down your spend? For example, uh, what percentage do you spend on new employees and what percentage do you spend on, let's say, other things? And um, how do you usually budget for this? For us, it is all related to the budget. So you have a budget 
and you have spending that needs to be within the budget it needs to be much to a specific budget line it is not possible to move budget from one bucket to another unless this is approved by the management thanks for your insights so i guess um this is one of my last questions so how do you usually suggest for financial leaders to establish financial controls within an organization what are some tips and tricks that you can give both being a CFO and also a former director of procure to pay at Coca-Cola it really depends on the business of the organization and its size the financial controls put simply are just controls about how much do you spend and how soon do you need to react if you see that your revenues are below the budget so it's always on two sides one is the revenue side and someone needs to monitor this strictly real time and to alert the relevant people if something's going wrong there to me it's much more important to generate more revenue than to spend less and on the other side again there is a dashboard that needs to be in place to show you how much do you spend what is your run time do you have enough money do you need to raise funding if this is your case because you're not profitable enough to sustain on your on your own etc and it's not something complicated it could be done even with an excel spreadsheet at a very very early stage provided that you have people with the right knowledge on board and there is someone sending a report regularly to whoever is concerned so they have timely information and could make informed decisions Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think you gave some really good examples for different stages of companies. I think for a lot of emerging organizations, they think that they need to have such a complicated system in place beforehand. And sometimes they think about implementing a solution way too early before even understanding where their spend culture is coming from. And um sometimes, you know, Excel might just be enough or something simple like just a spreadsheet or paper. There are many big organizations that are using Excel spreadsheets even if they have SAP or Oracle. Some part of the reconciliation process, some part of consolidation process is still via Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, I'm not surprised that you mentioned this because I think Excel is one of those tools that a finance person cannot really live without and it's kind of like a standard tool in the tool sets. We don't really like it. That's my background. I'm a chartered accountant. I have a degree in management and financial strategy from Oxford. But the finance people don't necessarily like Excel. At the same time, whatever systems and tools we have in place are far from perfect. And in the end, when it comes to consolidation, there are always some lines that need to be manually moved from one line to another because of tax reporting requirements, because of different reporting standards from IFRS to US GAAP, for example, etc. So it happens. It happens regardless of the system. So far, I have not seen a system that could do it all without any manual input. So that being said, what is something that you would like to see as a dream solution for managing spend? What does that look like? To me, it is something that is flexible, and at the same time, you have traceability. Being flexible could create lots of issues with historical data. Imagine that over time you want to change how certain expense is disclosed so you create a new account in your chart of accounts 
And as of January the 1st, 2019, for example, you start disclosing this using the new account, but you need to always report to previous years. It's required for tax reporting purposes. It is required for budgeting purposes. It is required to any management reporting purposes in general. You need to be able to see what is the deviation versus prior year versus three years ago, etc. And that flexibility on the first side is super good to have, but then it could be a really big mess because you cannot compare to the previous periods. The system will give you information, but it will not be 100% correct. At the same time, you have the flexibility, you have traceability, and you shall be able to make the changes you need and to have notes within the software to go back and understand what happened, why did it happen, and if you need to roll back, to be able to roll it back. And most systems do not give you that flexibility. Either you cannot roll back if something has happened, or you cannot trace when did it happen, why did it happen. So if the CFO changes and needs to check something five years ago, quite often there is no one to explain why the situation is as it is at present. It's really important that you mention that because I think understanding the what has happened and why, you know, that point is super important. I think it's important to look forward, of course, as like a business leader, but also to look backwards to see what are the things that you screwed up on and what have happened in the past that we could prevent. You also mentioned like switching CFOs where a new CFO coming in. That's a scenario that a lot of our clients have faced, um, you know, when the CFO goes and someone else now needs to make new changes and they don't even know what's going on because the system doesn't have the data. So I definitely understand that pain point there. <laughs> it happens. And it is about the system controls. Sometimes people complain because they cannot make a change and they need a change. Otherwise, it results in too much manual labor all the time. On the other hand, if a change is introduced and it's not traceable, you don't have system logs, you don't have proper documentation in place, it comes to policies and controls internally. So it is the system, but it is also internal policies and controls that would require to have proper documentation in place so whoever comes next is able to trace it and could potentially roll it back if needed. Thanks so much for sharing that. So this is my last question. So for business leaders that are hoping to create a better spend culture in their organization, what is one thing that you think really makes a difference? And uh, what are some strategies that you think they can take? Keep an eye on your revenues and how your revenues are reported. If it is on a cash flow basis, is it on an accrual basis because it makes a difference and it could mislead you and you could potentially make the wrong decision based on that. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.